Welcome to QTalks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. I'm Teller. And I'm Shreya. And we're your hosts for QTalks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not so typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. This episode is in collaboration with BBMS, whose goal is to encourage talks between medical scientists from different departments in the clinical school of the University of Cambridge. They host an annual conference with an aim to bring together early career scientists with experts in academia, healthcare, industry, and policy. This year, the focus of their conference is on scientific and technological advances in healthcare crises with featured panels on the response to COVID-19 and the impact of big data. Today's guest will be one of the panellists, so do check out the link in the description if you're interested. And it's worth noting that this episode was recorded in March 2021. This week on QTalks, we are talking to Sir Mene Pangalos, the Executive VP of Biopharmaceuticals R&D at AstraZeneca. He holds a PhD in neuroscience from UCL, and has worked at Wyeth and Pfizer prior to AstraZeneca. Hi, Mene. Thanks very much for coming on the show with us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I think it would be great if we can start by you giving us an overview of your background um, so that the listeners know who they're, who they're listening to. My name's um, Mene Pangloss, and I'm the executive vice president of uh, R&D at AstraZeneca. So my role and remit is basically to research and develop new medicines for for the company. My background is uh, I'm a neuroscientist. I was, uh, I I did my degree at Imperial College, did a biochemistry degree, and then I did a PhD on the neuropharmacology of Alzheimer's disease at a place called the Institute of Neurology, which is part of, of UCL. I then did some postdocs in the US, um, but knew from a relatively uh, early age in my sort of a scientific career that I wanted to get into industry. Um, so after my postdocs, I got a job actually in Belgium with a company called Janssen Pharmaceutical, which is part of the J&J family. Um, then moved to SmithKline Beach, which became GSK back in the UK. Um, running neuroscience groups. Then I um, moved back to America with a wife this time um, to a company called Wyeth, where I started as head of neuroscience and then ultimately became head of research and then came back to the UK in my current role as kind of head of R&D at at AstraZeneca. So it's been backwards and forwards across the Atlantic and a little bit of a stint in Europe as well in Antwerp, which which was lovely. Sounds like a wealth of experience in pharmaceuticals and in research. So you're the executive vice president of R&D. Um, and so maybe you can tell us what exactly does that mean? What does your job entail? What do I do? Yes. So look, I think my role is everything from the very basic research that we do in the company to understand disease pathophysiology um, and etiology in the areas that we work in, whether that be in cardiovascular disease or respiratory disease or diabetes, we know whatever disease are, we happen to work in. As a company, we work in 
a broad array of different diseases. We work in oncology, we work in cardiovascular renal metabolism, respiratory immunology, and we've also got some groups in microbial sciences and neuroscience. So as, as head of R&D, I basically am accountable for everything from the targets we identify and the pathways that we pick all the way to getting a medicine approved. So everything that we do in research to everything we do in development, from early stage development to late stage development, um, to ultimately, you know, getting, you know, having interaction with the regulator and getting a medicine approved. And of course, around of that come a whole lot of ancillary functions or expert functions, which are important in, for example, high throughput screening or toxicology or crystallography. So all of our expert functions that support our therapy areas also part of my remit to help ultimately uh, enable us to run both research programs and turn those research programs into candidates in mental clinical development and turn those clinical candidates into things that become medicines one day. Okay, and I just want to follow up on that. As a sort of senior director of, of a large company, how much of your day is spent doing sort of strategic thinking, putting pharmaceuticals aside in, in any large company? How does that look? Because you've only got the same 24 hours in the day as everybody else. It sounds like you've got a massive remit under you. It, it's look first and foremost i've got some great leaders so re- recruiting great people is critically important because you know they have to do a lot of the work as well but i think i would say i spend around 40 50 percent of my time focusing on the pipeline on projects whether they be research projects or clinical projects reviewing them understanding them commenting on them you know suggesting things you know working with my therapy area heads or looking at new technologies or, or platforms. I spend maybe 25% on people, you know, talent development and thinking about, you know, just the organization as a whole and making sure we're developing our individuals and another 25% thinking about, you know, strategic and operational um, things. So it's really a combination. It might be a little bit less on pipeline, a little bit more on strategy. But it's, it's basically a combination of thinking about science and projects people development, talent management, and then strategy and operations. And in order to achieve these projects, how important is collaboration with other key players such as the government, biotech companies, and academia been for AstraZeneca? There's collaborations with, you know, with smaller companies, biotechs and, you know, technology companies. There's collaborations with other pharmaceutical companies. And then obviously there's collaborations with, you know, with, with governments and, and, uh, and other other institutions and, and collaboration is is absolutely critical and it's critical with all of those um if i kind of think about one of the major changes that that, that i've made you know since i joined astrazeneca i've been astrazeneca now just over 10 years it's actually to to be outwardly focused rather than inwardly focused the analogy i would use is that we were a historically a company where i would say we were very good at personal bests um, because we were always inwardly focused, but we weren't setting any world records because we didn't actually pay very much attention to what was happening um, outside. And so our comparison was always inward, always to ourselves. And, you know, you can be setting world records, or you can be setting very poor times that are still personal bests. And I like to personally set world records. And, and the way you do that is by one casting your eye out much more broadly to the world because the power of the world's brain is much more than the power of the brain of AstraZeneca. 
And then being able to access that is, is critically important. And the way you access it was one by having great science in your institution and in, in AZ. Um, but then it's actually sharing your data, publishing your data, and forging relationships with all of the groups that we've just talked about, that we just talked about, um, and building relationships. And so actually our move to Cambridge is a really good example of that. So, you know, the reason why we moved down from Audley Park, where we had a major R&D centre in the northwest of the country, to Cambridge is because the ecosystem and the environment around us in Cambridge is one which is much more suitable for collaboration, regular interaction, and, you know, partnering with the, both the biotech and academic community in what's one of the most vibrant, um, you know, life science hotbeds, you know, in, in Europe and the world. And because we're very collaborative now, because we're very porous, because we share data, because we, um, I think, have a, a good cadre of scientists, it becomes also easier, you know, as, as your reputation grows. So collaboration is critically important, and we don't approach collaboration differently, whether it's an academic group, a pharmaceutical company, or a biotech company. We want to um, share and exchange ideas, information, learn from each other, and create as many symbiotic relationships as we can, wherever we can. I think this uh, this sort of placement of AstraZeneca in Cambridge is something that really interests a lot of people. So I'd like to dig into that a bit further. So I'm I'm interested to know there's like you said there's so much academia and biotech startups here and and AstraZeneca as well. So what do you see as the importance of each of those um areas in ultimately providing better health and welfare to society because that, that's their ultimate purpose of biopharmaceuticals. So how do those three players interact with each other? Um, in Cambridge or more generally? They hopefully thrive off each other. There's, there's obviously a turnover of people um, between companies, large, small, between academia and you know the public and private sector. And that interaction helps develop individuals. It helps develop a cadre of people that understand multidisciplinary teams, that understand different technologies and platforms, that understand what it takes to move from point A to point B to point C to point D to, to make, turn research into a medicine. Now, ultimately, you know, our goal, you know, in life sciences companies is to turn science into medicine, to have an impact, or the same in, if you're a technology or a device company. You're trying to do something that ultimately is going to have a positive impact on human health. Um, but I think the benefit of having it all co-located in a vibrant environment, whether you're looking at Boston or South San Francisco or Cambridge or Oxford or, or, or wherever, is that it becomes very easy to interact, to engage, to have those maybe off-the-cuff serendipitous interactions, as well as just to create, you know, partnerships where you can get multiple people involved. And that, that to me, is, is the beauty of it. There's something wonderful for us about being, you know, on the Adabooks campus next to the cancer research building next to the laboratory from molecular biology next to the you know the mrc metabolism center there's just lots of amazing people all around us and for that to work for us in the hospital we have to also be viewed as being amazing people and collaborative people so that we're giving as much as we're taking as it were in terms of knowledge understanding um and innovation 
And the LMB is actually a really good example because when we first moved down to Cambridge, even though we're not in our new building yet, and we've got you know, several thousand people now in Cambridge, people generally say, "Well, you'll never really be able to work with the LMB. They're, you know, they're, they're obviously a fantastic organisation, hugely innovative, but you know, very basic research and somewhat inward in terms of you know, inward focused in terms of how they work." But you know, working with the MRC and you know, um, Hugh Pelham at the time. We set up a small fund to actually stimulate collaborations between AZ and the LMB, and now we have you know collaborative interactions with you know almost half of the PIs in the LMB, and it's absolutely phenomenal. And most of it is you know fairly basic slash applied research, but hugely useful for us, and hopefully hugely useful for them because we're taking the best of our our, our skill sets, combining them. Than doing something that we probably couldn't do on our, or either of us could do on our own. And that for me is the power of collaboration where you both benefit by being in the partnership. That's really interesting about the collaborations with the LMB. A, a thought that's, that's going through my mind right now is that whilst the collaborations make sense on many levels, there's one key difference, which is sort of finances and the incentives around it. Because in academia, as you said, is sort of basic research in the sense that there's, they're not necessarily commercially driven unless they're looking to spin out, whereas that's perhaps not the case in AstraZeneca. So how how do those two meet in the middle um, in order to make that work? In, in, in AZ, we're incentivized by, you know, ultimately turning science into a medicine that we can commercialize. And in academia, people tend to be incentivized by high impact papers and grant funding. And, and those, you know, are different. But what I would say is when you're in an organization, and I take our organization in, in, in particular, I'm as passionate and um, committed to incentivizing my scientists to do good science as I am about them um, delivering medicines. And I actually fundamentally believe that in order to turn science into medicine, you have to be doing high-quality, high-caliber, high-impact science that's peer-reviewed. So all of our scientists publish. We actually measure how much we publish, and it's part of the you know how I reward my scientists and how they know they're doing well. And, of course, that is a common metric for academia as well because they also want to publish. So that, for me, is a common goal. But ultimately, many academic groups, particularly those working in the applied sciences, they're also thinking about how they can turn their research into something that ultimately has an impact on human health. So even in that regard, even though they may not be thinking about it commercially, they are thinking about it in a way of, I want to make sure my science is useful, is applied, and has an impact on human health. And again, in that regard, our goals are very closely aligned. So just to follow up on that, do you think academia could that we could see it become even more commercial focused, a bit more like industry in the future, is the distinction between the two uh, actually quite important? I think that happens already. I think, you know, academics and entrepreneurs, I mean, look at, you know, you only look at the, the, the Golden Triangle in the UK, which is you know, between Cambridge, Oxford and London. You see how many startups and how many spin-outs there are from academia um, and you can say the same in Boston. Again, you can say the same in South San Francisco, New York. You know that that's how startups and biotechs, you know, are created and funded by venture capitalists. So, 
I think they will all that will always I think exist and continue to hopefully thrive in 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 the in the UK in Europe in the US. Um, but I also think it's very important that you know there is basic research and fundamental research that isn't um, doesn't have a commercial mindset, and I think that's also incredibly important. If you think about it, think about something as basic as uh, as CRISPR Cas9 gene editing, which you know has come out of studying bacteriophage and some very you know fundamental biology. I don't think anyone, when they were working on that, really thought that it was going to be applied to all of you know the life sciences as it is today. Um, but I, and, and that's I think the beauty of basic research. You don't exactly know where it's going to take you. And I think if we lose that, I think that's quite a dangerous thing um, to happen. And one of the I think the wonderful things about the UK is is it's got such a high caliber research you know, an, an academic um, pedigree um, across, you know, many universities in the UK, you know, through MRC, through BBSS3, through Wellcome, which means that the quality of the research is high, which then means the quality of the translational and applied research is high, which then means that it's a great environment for companies like AstraZeneca and Biotech to be in because we're rubbing shoulders with some very smart, very, um, very competent people. So I think a lot of what we talked about so far all sounds very exciting and that the future is full of sunshine. Um, I'm interested to know what are the some of the biggest barriers that are currently facing you in in your role in order to push the industry and push AstraZeneca to where you want it to be? So, I mean, you know, what are the barriers? The barriers, for the, let's talk about academic research, but the barriers, I think, first of all, are, um, you know, funding. There's never enough funding. Um, and trying to increase the amount of funding from governments to be able to support both basic and applied research in academia is hugely important. And, of course, us leaving um, the European Union and losing quite a bit of, uh, of IMI funding um, has the potential to have a big impact, um, as does, obviously, the, the pandemic at the moment, which is putting a strain on, uh, on government finances. In terms of the challenges for, um, for a pharmaceutical company, for our industry, we talk about turning science, or I talk about turning science into medicine, which is what we're all trying to do. But when you look at the success rates of companies of being able to turn that science into medicine, they're exceptionally low. I'll ask you a question. Do, do you have an idea of what the success rate is from going to, let's say, you, let's take out all the risk of doing research, and let's say we've identified a candidate, and you're trying to turn that clinical candidate into a medicine. What do you think the success rate is for our industry? Let's take a guess at 1%. It's a little bit higher than that, but 1% wouldn't have been a bad guess a few years ago. We're probably The industry is probably at around 5 6 6%. Right? So just to put that into context, and that's not taking into account research, right, where there's another um, you know, even higher failure rate. But this is so from candidate to, to launch, industry average around you know, 6%, 7% right now. Um, so that means, on average, companies are failing 93% of the time. I mean, it's huge. That's a, if you think companies spending $6, 7000000000 billion a year, think, think about how much that is, how much failure that is uh, in, in, in a year. Now, at AstraZeneca, we've done a great job over the past few years of taking our success rate from, from 2005 to 2010. Our success rate was around four or five percent we were one of the poorest performing companies in the industry 
interestingly, we were one of the highest performing, if you measure the number of candidates we were putting into the clinic, we were one of the poorest performing when you measured how many medicines we were launching. So our candidates weren't being translated into medicines. Um, we can talk about incentives and quality versus quantity um, afterwards if, you, if you're interested. But um, since that time, and with many of the changes that we've made in terms of focusing on fewer programs but with a higher quality and higher understanding, our success rate now in AstraZeneca is around 20%, so quite a bit above the industry um, average, and I would say top, you know, top performing, top two or three performing companies, um, you know, in, in in the world right now in terms of productivity. But even at 20%, let's say if we're 25% right now, I think we're a little bit bit higher than when we last measured it. Even at 20 or 25%, it still means we're failing 75% of the time. That's still a really, really high failure rate. Um, you know, think about car companies or phone companies. I mean, they, they, they don't they don't fail like that, right? So it's a very high risk business. Um, so what do I worry about? I worry about improving my success rates. I, I worry about understanding disease pathophysiology better. I worry about being able to do my clinical trials more cost effectively, smaller studies, better endpoints, um, less variability um, between treatment effects and placebo, uh, and, and all of these things I hope will ultimately help, you know, if we focus on them, I think will help us improve our productivity a little bit further. Now, you never want it to get too high. If the product, if, if, if our success rates, I think, go up into the 50% range, we're probably not innovating enough and taking enough risk because, you know, the diseases we work on are complex, and I don't think we're ever going to understand the biology that well. But I think if we can go from... 20 or 25 percent to 30 percent or 35 percent that has a huge impact on one our overall spend or the productivity of that spend it has a huge impact on the output of medicines that come uh, as a consequence of the six or seven billion dollars that we invest every year so that's what i worry about i worry about how do we continue to improve our productivity and even though that we've we've got much better and we're sort of in the top echelons of performance that we never become complacent we never become bored um, and we're always striving to do better. And one of the beautiful things of being in our industry, I have to say, is that it's very difficult to get bored. I don't think in my career so far I've ever had one year being the same as another year. So I can tell you a year ago, I didn't know very much about vaccines and COVID and SARS-CoV-2 um, relative to how much I know today. And I'm still obviously, we're all learning a lot. But you know, every year is very, very different in our industry. And it throws up all sorts of different challenges, and that's I think what also makes it a very exciting job, very exciting career, and a, you know, very exciting industry to be in. Well, I think that's really interesting because I think we don't often appreciate how many dead ends there are when it comes to drug development. And on a slightly related note, so you know, it's great that you increase the success rate of developing drugs. So I was just wondering, how do you ensure that this increased success? benefits society as a whole, the global society, because obviously there are certain groups that have historically um, benefited less from drug development, especially as we go into the age of more personalized medicine. So how do you ensure as a pharmaceutical company that you're benefiting as wide a variety of people as possible? Geographic diversity, especially with, you know, currently the COVID vaccine is being there are many COVID vaccines on the market and 
they're mostly reaching a certain proportion of Western countries. So, I mean, does this really lie with pharmaceutical companies? It does. It does. So it does lie with pharmaceuticals. So I'll give you an again. I can't speak for other companies. I can speak to you about what we're doing, particularly with COVID. I, I mean, so let me take a step back and talk about the question first of all in terms of precision medicine and making sure that your medicines or the approaches we take, you know, tackle you know all forms of disease and are accessible to as many people as possible. Of course, we ultimately want to do that because the more accessible the medicine is. Um, you know, the more impact it has and, and also, you know, you generate revenue from, from selling more medicines. So um, that's obviously in, in our best interest, but ultimately also hopefully in the, in the benefit of a uh, of, of patient. For something specifically like a pandemic, like SARS-CoV-2, different companies are taking different approaches. The approach that we've taken, and we're not a big vaccine, we were not a big vaccine company or a big vaccine player, but we got into the space because we thought that we could help Oxford um, in terms of our global experience, our footprint and our ability to sort of scale things, both from a development and a manufacturing perspective. But we also committed that during the pandemic, we would do it and not for profit um, to exactly be able to address the question that you're, or the point that you're raising, which is you know, making sure that our vaccine is not just reasonably priced, but it's reasonably priced for everyone. Um, and I do think that's slightly different to what some other companies have, have done. So when you look at the supplies and the agreements that we have with with CEPI and Gavi or with COVAX, these are all you know, not-for-profit organizations that distribute vaccines, not just to um, high-income countries, but lower middle-income countries. We have as much of our supply going to those countries as we do to the wealthy countries. Um, and th- that's been fundamentally important to us and to Oxford because, you know, for something like a pandemic, you need every you need the pandemic to be solved everywhere, not just in the wealthy countries, for us to get back to normal. Um, and so that's been very important to us. And we've committed even post-pandemic that our vaccine was will commercialise it in the wealthier countries in terms of a reasonable price. Again, we will continue to sell the vaccine. At, not-for-profit prices in low-income countries around the world. So that will continue as well. Um, so th- that's dependent on the company. That's what we've done. I think it's the right thing. Um, I'm hugely proud of our company, our board, you know, Pascal, our CEO, for enabling us to do that. Um, and we're working super hard to try and get as much supply to all um, parts of the world um, as quickly as we can. It's fantastic to hear what AstraZeneca has been doing in the efforts towards COVID-19 and making the vaccine not-for-profit. I think the listeners would be interested to understand a bit more about the financial motivations of a pharmaceutical company and why it is that they have to make a profit above and beyond those those other players in the healthcare system. We're publicly traded, right? So ultimately, investors, you know, choose which companies to invest in. They can invest in Tesla or Apple or Google or AstraZeneca or the, an oil and gas company. So I think you know, it's a, it's a, fortunately or unfortunately, a free market. So to be able to have in people invest their money into our company, 
um, we have to be able to not just generate medicines, we have to be able to generate a profit from those medicines that is attractive to investors or else it all falls down. Hmm. I guess that ties back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of the different players um, that in this in this sort of larger ecosystem of of healthcare um, and how each have a different different role to play. Just to put it into context for you, so we're spending about one or two billion, one billion dollars on the development of the COVID vaccines, or you know, on a diabetes program. These are not the sums of money you're talking about to develop a medicine aren't a million dollars or two million dollars. We're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars generally. Year in the five or you know five years, seven years to do it to go from first in man to launch normally is a you know, if you're in oncology, you might be able to do it in, in five years. For in diabetes, it could be seven or eight years or nine years. You're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, we, we spend over six billion dollars a year on research and development. The, the sums of money aren't the sorts of things that you can talk about for a you know university to do or an individual lab to do. It's it's, it's, it's a different scale. If you're biotech, I know biotechs can't really do it, which is why biotechs often ultimately partner with pharmaceuticals. Some biotechs do do it, and then they start start generating revenues, and then they can start to invest more in R and D and grow the business. Moderna is a very good example. You know, Moderna is making you know tens of billions of dollars from their COVID vaccine this year, but they've spent billions of dollars to get there. So we we like to kind of keep things um, in context of like the the progress of your career and i think one thing we'd really like to know is so far what has been the highlight of your career that you look back with the most pride on oh goodness that's a really tough question so i mean i have to say this last year and what we've done with the covid vaccine working with oxford is definitely up there as one of the most intense challenging but also proud years that i've had you know not just because of the the volume and degree of work that um, so many of my colleagues have put in um, during the course of the past 12 months and have continued to do so. I mean, we're literally talking 24-7 non-stop. And the fact that we have a vaccine now in the UK that is making a huge difference, as we can see from some of the real-world um, data that's being published um, over the past few weeks, but also a vaccine that's being used in low middle income countries, it's being used all over Europe. Um, that's been, I think, hugely gratifying. Now, I think every time a medicine gets approved is the proudest moment of my uh, of my career. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough to have um, quite a few. Um, you know, Tegriso, which is a lung cancer drug, which was um, developed in super fast time from candidate to launch in, in just a few years. Um, and it was one of the, I think, turning points for AstraZeneca's success. Um, it's something that's hugely proud. Limpaza, which is and ovarian and breast cancer and prostate cancer drug for BRCA positive patients actually and, and something that's called HRD positive patients and that's a drug that was ultimately dead and terminated and we brought it back to life and we made it into a very successful medicine I'm hugely proud of that but probably most important I'm just proud of being part of the AstraZeneca turnaround we were one of the least productive companies in the world and now we're one of the most productive R&D companies in the world and um, you know that I think is probably my my biggest contribution um, to the company and to to life sciences. 
Um, and my job now is to make sure that we keep it going because it's quite difficult to keep it going and to keep the success going and to keep improving. But that's what I want to do um, while I'm still with AZ. Um, and, you know, that's what I think most of my peers in the industry are trying to do with their R&D groups as well. That's fantastic. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. It's been excellent to gain an insight into AstraZeneca and how, how it all works. So it's been, it's been fantastic to talk to you, Mene. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for taking the time with me. I think it was really interesting to have spoken to Mene and get the insights that we did behind the scenes about how AstraZeneca really works. Um, and something that I particularly took away from that conversation that I found interesting is that the industry average for success of a medicine is about 5%, whereas AstraZeneca is currently operating at 20%, um, which I think is really quite quite amazing and credit to Mene and the rest of his team, as he was saying. And I also found it really interesting when he talked about the interactions between AstraZeneca and LMB in Cambridge, Lab of Molecular Biology, and how despite seemingly different aims, you know, one with basic research and the other with actually developing drugs, that they were able to make fruitful collaborations with over 50% of the PIs, which I think is, you know, really optimistic view for how much the two can achieve together. Thanks very much to Mene for talking to us on Q Talks. This podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. And we'd also like to say a big thank you to the team at QTech, who have all been working hard behind the scenes. Thank you very much for listening. And please do go ahead and rate us or leave a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme, or tell us your experiences with applying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io forward slash QTalks.